0: If you don't heal the wounds of your childhood, you bleed into the future. Oprah Winfrey. Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. Welcome, especially if this is your first episode. If you're just finding us, we are thrilled that you are here. And excited for today's topic, which I'll introduce here in a moment. I'm Brett Etheridge, co-host of the podcast. First, let me bring on Perry Hughes. Perry, uh, looks like you're at your home in North Carolina, right? How, How have you been? How's your week been so far? I am in North Carolina.
1: That's exactly right. It's been a great week so far. Lots of fun things happening. My one kind of neat thing this week is my kids, on their own, have taken on <clears throat> upon the the task of building a giant platform beside their trampoline. And um, as you know, you know, I've got some builder uh, families, we've built houses, we've, you know, done construction. So my kids have kind of been around that. They're handy with the power tools, handy with a hammer, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is literally the first construction project that they, my two oldest sons, are doing completely themselves. I am not saying anything about it and they have erected this platform up above the trampoline. They have taken scrap treated lumber. They made posts, they dug footers, they did the framework everything all themselves and now they've informed me that we need to buy a net for the trampoline because they've bounced themselves off of it so high so many times <laughs> since they built the platform. <laughs>
0: Boys will be boys. And <laughs> hey, could be an opportunity for them to make some money. I need to rip out my deck and build a new deck this summer. And I'm intimidated by it. And so the fact that your are 12, 13, 14 year old boys are, are building decks, essentially, that's, yeah. that's impressive.
1: Yeah. And the trampoline is not in ground. It's probably, you know, Three and a half feet off the ground. And then the deck is probably, I would say, five feet off the trampoline, you know, so the deck's probably eight feet in the
0: air. So without netting, they are launching themselves yeah. <laughs> from <laughs> from high off the ground onto the ground. And there's a, so there's a lot of freedom there. They've obviously grown <laughs> up in freedom, which is great. Uh, some kids don't grow up maybe with quite that same freedom. Maybe they don't get to a stage where they, where they, I don't know, respond that way because maybe they've dealt with some trauma or some neglect and some things that they're having to overcome and deal with, which is a big part of what we're going to be talking about on this episode. And to help us do that, we are joined by Steve Grainer. Steve, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. Honored to be here. And now I, I, wanna, I don't want to jump off that deck, but I want to see it. You got it. So, Perry, I, I will expect a picture and uh, maybe a, a couple casts on broken arms, but that'll be—that's you know, part of life.
0: <laughs> that's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll post something on our Instagram channel, so that's—I want—I want to see that too. But I—I I also want to talk with you, Steve, some more about healthy relationships healing from trauma for the listener by way of background you have heard me mention on this show a book that i started reading at the beginning of the year and i finally finished it called what happened to you by a psychologist child psychologist named dr bruce perry and it really has reframed my own thinking about how i relate with my two older boys who as the listeners will know are adopted they've been with us so long i it doesn't even doesn't even register anymore that they're adopted i don't think of them that way and yet i'm reminded from time to time that they had years of their early life that weren't with us where they were exposed to some things that may be showing up in their lives now and so i've just been fascinated trying to unpack that and figure out why do they, why do they show up in the world the way they show up when i find myself saying to them, or at least thinking in my brain, like, what's wrong with you? Like, Why are you doing that? What is wrong? What's going on in that brain of yours? This book, Dr. Perry's book, has shifted my thinking to instead ask the question, what happened to you? And acknowledging that for my two older boys, at least, they had some things happen to them in their early years that no doubt are showing up in the way that they are showing up in the world. Mm. And so I've been fascinated by this, and I reached out online, not even, frankly, expecting to hear back from Dr. Perry, and I didn't hear back from Dr. Perry, but I heard back from his team and his network, who connected me with one of their team members, Steve, Steve Grainer. And so we're thrilled to have you on, Steve. Steve, your background is in education, right? And by the way, so um, maybe you can tell me, I don't even necessarily totally understand this neurosequential network that you are a part of tell us maybe a little bit about what that's all about. But your background is in education, which I think is so cool, because really, if we can help educators understand what might be going on with some of their students, they can teach them better, help them better, and all of those types of things. And I think for you, the most important part of your bio is that you're a dad of three, but a grandpa of nine. Tell us something about your family and your grandkids as well.
2: Well, that'll take the rest of the podcast. Um, <laughs> sorry, but let's go back. How about how about I go back to when I was twelve years old in in uh, in study hall, hearing two of my friends giggling behind me, thinking they're looking at a a naughty magazine, um, and they I turn around and I say, "Let me see that magazine." It was Scientific American. Um, oh wow! So here here's what I got from that story: the guy sitting behind me was Doctor Bruce Perry who has become kind of a world-renowned child psychiatrist, neuroscientist guy. But he was just my 12-year-old friend reading Scientific American in the seventh grade. So I I was reading Archie comics. um, (laughs) And so my joke is, he went on to be who he he did, you know, and, and wrote that book that you're talking about, Brett. And and I stayed in middle school. I just never got out. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I was a middle school teacher for um, 33 years, and really toward the end of of my teaching and co- and I was a coach, coach mostly high school. Um, cross country, right? Cross country and track were you know were my specialties. And um, while I was teaching, actually toward the end of my teaching and coaching. Bruce and I'll just refer to him as Bruce because we don't want to mix him up with Perry, who's you know right. with us here. There's, there's a couple of Perrys going on. Um, he came to to my city in North Dakota where I was teaching, and uh, of course I had to go. Right, I I didn't go because I knew what he was going to teach me, but I went because he's my really good friend, and I want to see him, and and I want to spend some time with him in any way that I could. And then he kind of blew me away. Um, all of a sudden, Brett, in in much the same way you describe reading this book, he gave me a new lens <laughs> to look hmm. through um, and to see kids in a different way, and um, that was really the beginning. And then I did the one thing no one else in the audience of many could do: I took them home.
0: <laughs> yeah, and,
2: and and we sat around. A, really, this is how my work started. We sat around my dining room table and I hoped to keep him for a half an hour. He stayed for three and a half hours and told me more. And I said, this absolutely knowledge belongs in education. And certainly it belongs in parenting. And uh, I I can't, I have to proceed with a different way of looking at children. And so that was, that was my um, beginning. And At the end of that night, we decided this belongs in education. He said, well, maybe when you retire, you can come and work with me. And we began at that moment. I mean, the very next day, we began sharing this model of understanding in our school. And that became the neurosequential model in education, which is now uh, grown and kind of spread throughout the world. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, kind of how I got involved.
0: Yeah, which is fantastic. And and to be clear, this model and really what we're going to be talking about is understanding, frankly, what's happening at a bi- biological level, like what's going on in the brain, what happens in the early years as our kids are forming their relationship with the world. and And it certainly applies in the case where we may be fathering kids who have gone through some trauma issues. But a lot of our listeners, Perry, you're in a situation, you you don't have any adopted kids, your kids grew up well adjusted, and they, you know, they're, they haven't dealt with any of this. And yet, we're just talking about human relationships, human connection, deep human connection. And so I think there's something here for everybody. Um, maybe you can start I know, I know, we don't want to get in the weeds too much of the scientific America aspect of things, right? <laughs> but
1: don't Before worry talk I, about i
0: can't i'm not even capable of it that's right well <laughs> so maybe you can talk at our level right the lay level Um, because I do think it's important to at least have a a surface level understanding of sort of how the brain works and what's going on in the early years of a child's development that's so crucial to the relationships they ultimately have with their parents, how they form social networks, how, how they relate with their friends eventually in fifth grade. In some part, Stems from how they were nurtured when they were one year old. Is that right? Talk talk about the brain and sort of how that unfolds before we dive into some other topics. Yeah,
2: I, I'm going to start with a metaphor, just geared toward Perry's boys, um, who built that platform. Oh. Is Dr. Perry's one of his favorite metaphors? And I and, and he he opened this up to us right away. He said. All of our jobs fundamentally as as fathers, let's just call that and even grandfathers, our, our fundamental job is is somewhat in 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 loving and caring for our kids is really to change the brain. Um, that's that's a fundamental job of teachers. it's a fundamental job of pastors. it's we are we are looking to change the brain And then he looked at us and he said, well what do you know about it?" And he said, you know in order to to do anything well uh, and, and then he related it to cars He said, if you're going to fix a car, you got to know what's under the hood. If if you're going to make a difference, you got to know what's under the hood. You know, we've all probably, you know, I probably have lifted up the hood and acted like I knew what was going on, but I really didn't. Um, but no, I grew, I grew up um in the city, but I ended up on the farm and I and I remember um being working on the farm with my my stepfather, uh having a my tractor just shut down one time and I and I didn't know <laughs> I had no idea. And my dad didn't come over and give me tools. He didn't come over and give me um, commandments. He didn't come over. He came over and showed me what was under the hood. Yeah. And then I fixed my tractor with a fingernail file and a T-shirt. So I, I said, that's kind of where we're at with, with understanding the brain is let's just basically understand what's under the hood. And, and in a Dr. Perry's model, and if our listeners could see me, I'm, I'm making an upside down triangle and that's the mo- he he creates a model of course the brain doesn't look anything like a triangle but he creates this upside down triangle and he div- divides it into four parts and that bottom part the bottom two parts i think are the parts i did not understand as a teacher as a father as a husband i did not really understand the dynamic nature of the lower parts of the brain now some people say lizard brain and wizard brain and i think we can go beyond that um really what, what I really became attracted to is the understanding of the low parts of the brain because they're they don't have um explicit memory, but they have all the memory that begins in the womb. And that's really important. Um what when, when we think about our first part of our brain, the lowest part of our brain, the brainstem, which is attached to our spinal cord. That part of the brain actually does develop and start to organize in the womb, and it organizes in the midst of something we all love perfect temperature, steady calories um <laughs> and the wonderful thing the the beat of our mother's heart yeah and and so we or that brain organizes in rhythm in comfort, in the soothing nature of what it means to be in the womb, okay, but then as as Dr Perry wisely pointed out then we are born into this cold and cruel world <laughs> and that is that is the baptism of fire isn't it because now all the automatic stuff is gone and when the, all the automatic stuff is gone the only way that we can survive as babies is for an external caregiver in the usually hopefully in the form of our parents and principally in the form of our mothers, our our caregivers have to now swaddle us to keep us warm. They have to feed us to get the calories that we need. Um, our own heart and lungs start to take over the system of the blood. Um, but there's also the padding and the rocking and the all oh, the replicating of rhythm that happens early, early in childhood. And that leads to a low part of the brain that feels safe and regulated, and dare I say, almost we're trying, always trying to return to the womb um, to find that 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 kind of safety and satiety that we would love to have. When that doesn't happen, and sadly for a number of our kids, that doesn't happen, that. Um, sense of, and I I think this is an important word, that sense of attachment is compromised. Mm. And when that attachment is compromised, it can lead to a whole host of struggles and challenges later in life as you're talking about. So maybe I should not keep blobbing on and see if you guys want to reflect on that or come back and say, ask me anything else, but I'll, I'll continue as we go but you don't need too much of Steve at once.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that visual of the upside down triangle from a father's perspective. It seems to put a lot of pressure on those early years. And so the question becomes what happens if things weren't handled perfectly during those early years, there was a section of the book that really compared and contrasted Um, It essentially said, if I'm remembering this correctly, that for a child who essentially got the first three months right, right, experienced loving, love and nurturing and caring for like the first three months, but then had a traumatic next five years, that person still ended up being better, quote unquote, than somebody who had, you know, a terrible first 3 months but then like a great next 5 years in other words that early part is so crucial and so for me it was eye opening because and and i want i want to hear your thoughts on that like what do we do about that and 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 what if we mess that up and what if our kids did didn't have a great first part of their lives what do we do to heal that i remember naively so when we when we stepped in to take custody of my two older boys they were 3 and 5 and I remember, and I, I didn't know anything about anything. You know, I just knew I was, we were going to step in, give him food, shelter, and love and, and hope that that, that helped. But I remember naively thinking, well, the three-year-old, he'll be fine. Like he hasn't had all that long in that environment. He'll be fine. It's the five-year-old who's had more exposure to that. He'll, you know and that was sort of my thinking but i'm realizing is it's not necessarily the length of time they were in that environment i actually think my 3 year old had it worse earlier on like the 5 year old the mother was showing up well in his life early on she was she was trying to be there trying you know doing things the right way and it wasn't until later that that things started to go awry for him. Now, he's still still dealing with some things. I think it was worse for the three-year-old. So even though it was three years versus five years, in some ways, the three-year-old can have a worse time of it than the five-year-old. And Talk about all of that. Why does timing matter? And again, what if things don't go well?
2: Well, yeah, that t- the timing does matter. And the way you describe your boys um, is absolutely accurate. The the first you know I, I think Dr. Perry would as you already have said and I'll repeat it those first twelve weeks are are very very crucial in, in forming that word that I mentioned a bit ago positive attachment and making that human connection that you trust really for the rest of your life and so it, it would be of no surprise to me. It, that the three year old might struggle more than the five year old. And and the the illustration you gave is perfect. When when we have a good opener, yeah. a good first few innings, mm-hmm. um the the game will go a lot better. Um but let's let's even back up further because when we're talking to fathers, I say that should should really say to us fathers that it's the nine months even before that. Yeah. That make a huge difference. So if you're yeah. a father understanding that, you know, the only part of my child's brain that's going to organize while my wife is pregnant, is going to be organizing in the womb, always oh, incumbent upon us that we care for our, we care for our wives, and we care for our mothers, Um it, in the most generous way that, that we can. And I, I, you know, I don't mean put your feet up and just like, you know, we, we obviously know not that, but, but to, to really care for mom's emotional health and, and mom obviously being there for her physical health and, and just her relational health um, is the, is number one. That's where it starts. And then in those first few months, to give all the support that that one can as a dad it is crucial. And so even though mom is the primary caregiver um, in most cases, um, dad is an incredibly important primary caregiver as well. So just think of those children are forming their first ideas of human relationships with mom and dad. Yeah. And how those human relationships are formed early will make a difference when they're three and they're five, and now they're 12 and they're 14. And I, I would say, especially when they're 12, when the brain goes through kind of another another birthing process, oh, I don't want to call it that, but it's another major change. I, I know this as a middle school teacher um, <laughs> quite well, and, and that, that's another very vulnerable time for kids. So, we you know, we really pay attention to to those needs, and those are needs that have to be supplied by both mom and dad. Okay, then the the million dollar question, of course, is well, what if that didn't happen? And and the beautiful thing about you know, I always I always say we are you know I to, to quote the psalmist, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, there's there is no ever no reason to give up. <laughs> there, Amen. Uh, the brain, in, in the way it has been created, it has this beautiful plasticity. This beautiful—it is so complex, as complex as the cosmos, really, and it is ever changing, ever moving. Um, which gives us hope, right? That gives us the hope that this brain can change now. I don't want to oversell the fact that these early childhood experiences will probably affect us for all of our lives. But we can understand them and we can do a number of wonderful things to to help mediate that. As Dr. Perry eloquently says in one of his books, but that child may always speak the language of love with an accent. (laughs) <laughs> it may not be um it may not be exactly what we expect it may not be you know sort of what we perceive as as perfect or great or whatever but they will speak the language of love and and i think um in many of the dealings he's had with some of the most severely traumatized children and to see them be raised up and become healthy and, and, you know, happy and, and, and I don't even mean to say productive citizens, but I, I, that, that seems almost unfair, but they, they become good people because they are good people, right? Yeah. They were, they were good from the start, but a lot of it got covered up. And, and I always say that's, that's one thing we're always doing as dads and teachers and coaches. We're always trying to uncover the good that's already there. But it's been covered by some experiences these children had no control over.
0: Let's continue talking about the role of the father. What are some specifics that fathers can and should be doing to help to help our kids regulate well? You know, the, the mother is they're breastfeeding and, and forming those connections early on. But you said there's a role for the father as well that starts even, even in the womb let's say you know we're we're talking to fathers now who who are there from the beginning they're loving they're well intentioned they're not going to abuse their kids they're not going to intentionally neglect their kids they're just going to be the best fathers they can what should those fathers be doing and then, for a father who's maybe stepping into the adopted relationship and is wanting to start some of that healing process, what are the things that are helpful? Is it is it physical touch? Is it words? Is it rocking them? Just like what are the things that are going to help our kids regulate that we as a father can be doing?
2: I, I'm going to say yes, yes, and yes to everything you just said. Um, okay, uh, but I, I would really focus on one word in particular, and that is the word presence. Yeah. Um, fathers, I think it's changed. (laughs) I'm much older than you two. Um, and, 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 um, I, you know, I had a father until I was seven. I lost my dad when I was seven. So that was, you know, that was a a rough patch. Um, that's
0: traumatic, right? I mean, that would, that
2: count as trauma? Well, it does. It, It would count as trauma not because i wasn't able to overcome it but because in the moment it was more stress on my system and my little brain than i than i could process than i could possibly handle um and that's what makes trauma trauma it's when stressors overwhelm us to the point we are sort of helpless to deal with them mm. I, you know i later had losses in my life significant losses in my life as well uh, of course but then i was able to to painful, sad, awful, but able to handle them. And I would not call those trauma. Sure. Because I didn't experience them in the same way. But, you know, as um, now I got, I think I've
0: already spun yeah. away from your question. I interrupted. I apologize. Well, I was asking what things we can do as fathers. And you were explaining that you had your father until age seven. But just thinking about what we can do as fathers to, to help regulate our kids well. Yeah.
2: And, and then I'll go back to that word presence. So so certainly I had the, the presence of a beautiful, wonderful mother, but I want to say this to, and this is to all fathers who might know a fatherless child. I needed the presence of someone who was father-like. Yeah. And, and I happened to find that in, in the neighborhood dads that in, in the street that I grew up on, which had plenty of young dads who took me under their wing. And later, it became teachers and coaches um but presence is um you know sometimes undersold uh, we sometimes say well it's quality time that matters and i and i agree quality is great but i don't want to let any doubt off the hook quantity matters it's it's a quality and quantity game because this brain sorry i'm tapping my head everybody um This brain will only change and only overcome those early childhood adversities that we've been talking about through repetition. Mm. So dads, you have to give your children enough repetitions of you to help bring the healing that their little brains require or just the nurture that their healthy brains require. It doesn't matter. it it works all the same. Um, I I also love to think back to the womb again. Let's think of rhythm. What can, and Perry, I'm going to go back to you, and I'm thinking of your boys building, building that platform, which I think is a beautiful metaphor for us for today. What were they doing? You were watching it. I bet there was a lot of rhythm going on, because in the pounding and the and the cutting and the you know even mm-hmm. with power tools it doesn't That's matter right. it, it's all about the rhythmic things I I um I bemoan the fact that I don't drive by more driveways where a father and son are out shooting sh- shooting hoops I um or even playing catch. Um, these these rhythmic things we do or even going for a, a walk or hiking together or anything dad, dads adds that involve rhythm, involve a, that sense of the comforting rhythms of the womb that that brings connection. Yeah. And, and so there's those are, are two really important words to me, rhythm and repetition. And I think dads can be creatively thinking about that. But think of your boys. How much of that was was rhythmic and breath and all the, the hard work that went into that? Um, they were doing things to to uh, really affect the lo- their lower brains, and they weren't even thinking about that. And they didn't have to be thinking about that. It just works because
1: that's the way we're made that's cool well I'd love to share just a couple things that we did um, with our kids in the early stages you know as we talk about just practical things that dads can do if you're a dad at the stage of your wife's pregnant or you're you're you have a newborn you know Brett has a a very young newborn daughter and so for us I think as fathers one of the great intentions I set out as my bride was pregnant with our kids was to create a calm and loving relationship with each other now we already our, we've been practicing and moving towards that our whole marriage. You know, we're not yelling at each other. there's not major conflict, there's not anything like that. But especially when she was pregnant with our kids, I was very intentional about calm, loving, peaceful you know, with her. I was very intentional about trying to protect her from an high stress environment. Maybe there was some meeting that needed to happen with our business or work. And I'm going, Hey, babe, I've got this. Why don't you go for a walk today? Whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I was very intentional about putting my face right up to my wife's belly and speaking and and loving towards my kids and saying, Hey, I can't wait to meet you. This is your dad. We're going to have so much fun in our life together. And so they would begin to know my peaceful and calming voice, you know, so, so those are some of the practical things that I did while they were in the womb. And then once they showed up, boom, they have this big, uh, entrance into the world, this cold, dark environment. Nancy and I were very intentional about wearing our kids. So we would get those wraps, um, That you can, it's just a, basically this big, long piece of fabric. And if you're not into that, you could also, they make just carriers that you don't have to tie the knots and stuff. But even me as a dad, the father, I, when Nancy needed a break from the kids, I would strap those kids on with me and wear them around. And we worked really hard at having them in car seats, minimally. Um, you know, we would see people around at a restaurant or the shopping center or whatever, and their kid is just in the car seat. And we tried to stay away from that and we tried to wear our kids when we were running errands. Yes, it's a little bit more of a hassle to get them out of the car seat, put them on your chest, tie the wrap around, go into the store, et cetera, et cetera, all the things. But for us, and we weren't formally educated on these things, we just felt in our spirit that, um, you know, these are kind of more older time practices, like pre-technology. Babies were worn. They were close to our bodies. And we we knew that there needed to be some kind of extension and try to lengthen that transition from uh, cold, harsh world, you know, warm, soft womb to cold, harsh world. And that was our kind of uneducated, just gut instinct at how to try to mitigate that transition and slow down the harshness, I guess, so, or buffer the harshness, I guess. And that was wearing wearing our children as much as possible, taking a nap on the couch with our kid laying on our chest, you know, as much as possible, just those types of things. And I was fully engaged and excited about that as a dad. You know, I didn't, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, it's woman's work to to strap a baby on your chest and walk around and do the chores of the day or whatever. So maybe that's helpful to some dads that don't really have any idea, maybe, so to speak, of how to begin to do some of those tactical things.
0: My wife, Melanie Perry, uh, last week, I think it was, and I might get these stats wrong. Uh, Steve, you might know some of this data, but she was reading a a study that basically was explaining that in the developing world and most other cultures, most other countries, Newborns are connected with their primary caregiver something like 90% of the time. Yeah. yeah. And in the United States, it's about 10 to 20% of the time. Dang. Because we put them in a cradle and sleep separately. We put them in a car seat and push them around instead of strapping them to our bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're always looking for a way to put our kids down. In other countries, it's like connected, connected, keep them on our person, keep them on our body, co sleep all of those types of things. To me, that was an eye-opening and stark contrast.
2: Exactly. And then and then I, I would even build upon that um for for both of you. The other the other thing I think Dr. Perry as an anthropologist as well would, you know, takes us kind of back into ancient times a little bit in his in his talk where where kids grew up and this is something I think all of us dads can listen to as well kids grew up in a, in a multi-generational world where there was grandma and grandpas close by and aunties and uncles, maybe all living under the same roof. Um, so children of, and much, you know, for 99% of the history of this world, that's that's how kids lived. Yeah. And now kids are are, you know, now we have much more isolated lives and and they're not always attuned to to their to many different ages of caregiving and caregivers which is kind of the next level right we from from the early nurture of the the two primary caregivers in a life we need to then expand their world to to, to that bigger world where more and more people can give them the kind of nurture and attention and attunement that they need to grow. So I think there, there again, in any way we can connect to our healthy relatives and healthy neighbors and healthy friends um, and, and get our, our kids exposed to more, more positive relational experiences, the better off our kids are. So, and never to be jealous of those relationships, but to actually promote them, and to hope they get a a richer and more varied relational experience.
0: So it sounds like that's part of the healing process then. I want to talk for another moment, maybe about adoptive relationships where some of the listeners may have kids who have come through trauma and we're trying to heal that trauma. And then I have some questions for you about um, non-adoptive situations, but you're talking about relationship building, you're talking about family, you're talking about social networks and constructions, building those around these kids. What are some other tools? What are some things that fathers like myself who are trying to continue to heal past neglect, past abuse should be conscious of?
2: So I'm going to talk about two, two things that just popped into my head. Number one, the incredible value, Brett, of you having an infant daughter, and your boys getting a chance to be a part of that infant daughter's relational web. Yeah, I, I, there is a a program, and I think it's called Seeds of Empathy, where they actually, it, it, I, I believe it was a a a brilliant woman in Canada. I want I want to say. That's right. And I could be wrong, but it, it doesn't matter. Seeds of Empathy, where she she has created programs in schools where, where a lot of these kids who have had, uh, you know, disrupted attachment experiences and are struggling, they bring infants and, and the mom, of course, <laughs> comes <laughs> comes to their class. And I don't even remember how many times a week. But they come to the class, and these kids get to watch a developing child. And, and they, they get to understand how fast their brains are growing and how, and how their presence and their caring for this child make a difference. So there's a, a real advantage to you <laughs> in yeah. having an infant daughter and letting your sons be a part of her nurture. So they get to understand and realize, you know, what a difference they make! It's yeah, encouraging. Um, that that's really an important thing. The other thing I, I would like fathers to understand, and again, let's all let's go way back to early childhood, early early childhood, and being born into this cold, cruel world is once we're born into this world, we have to uh we have to process our senses. Right? We 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 smell and taste and and touch and see, and all those senses come in low in the brain. And and then our brain has to make sense of those senses. What quite often happens to kids who have had a traumatic beginning is those senses come in wonky and they come in out of rhythm. And so when you see children who um, probably, and we see it in school, right? Kids are all of a sudden, they'll, they'll flip their desk. They'll tear the bulletin board apart. They'll they'll start trashing the room and I can almost guarantee they are having sensory overload and it's like everyone in the room is raking their fingernails across the chalkboard and they're going to display what looks like anger and what looks like rebellion. And what, and really what it often is is a sensory system that is out of, out of touch and, and they are losing it. And I have found And I think, this is, a, this is a, a, really another great thing for dads. One of the best ways to help integrate a sensory system is to give your kids time in nature and, and to spend time with your kids in nature because nature seems to be one of the greatest regulators out there. And I think, um, obviously, screen time and too much TV time and, and not enough time in the real connectedness of nature has really hurt our children. But we're using more and more of it, even in schools. Saying, "Teach outside when you can. Get outside. Take breaks. T- you know, take what we call brain breaks. You know, give your kids a break and let and walk and breathe and be out. You know, be connected to this beautiful outdoors that we have. Yours may be being a little nicer than mine. I don't know. Um, <laughs> at least at this time of the year. But those, th- that's another really practical thing. I think." movement breath nature um and, and certainly things i think we all value music and, and what that brings into a life those are the healing properties it, it, it isn't it, it's never talk first so let, let's just think about that upside down brain triangle remember all life has to go through the bottom to get to the top it, and all of our processing of information is bottom to the top. And so often we as parents and fathers make the mistake of, well, we're just gonna talk you into this better behavior. And our kids can't even hear the words. And they certainly can't make sense of them. And until they feel safe and regulated in the lower parts of their brain that were disturbed in the first place, they will never make sense of our talk. Right. In fact, they might, might not even make sense of a hug until they are regulated and in a space to receive our relationship and then to receive our reasoning and that leads me to Dr Perry's favorite mantra and mine as well it has become he said to dads to teachers to moms to anyone we must think of kids in this way regulate relate and reason there's an order to the way we want to calm and and nurture our kids and we are only respecting the way the brain is made. We're gonna regulate the lower areas, we're gonna relate and love them, and then we're gonna be able to talk with them and reason with them as they learn to be independent themselves.
0: So if the first piece of this is is the regulating piece, and I understand what you're saying is that I'm not gonna be able to relate with them, and certainly I can't reason with them when they are unregulated and they have to get regulated first. It seems to me observing my two older boys that a lot of what helps to regulate them are things that they can connect to from early on in their life even if some of those things were unhealthy. And I'm speaking specifically about music. So, you know, my my boys would drive around in in, in vehicles with lots of random people but listening to like heavy metal, death metal, like th- this music that as a father trying to raise my kids, well, I don't want my kids listening to this stuff. I'm like, why don't you just turn on Mozart? Like, we need to calm down. Like, take deep breaths. Let me, let me flip on some Beethoven, maybe some worship music. And that almost that almost hypes them up even more. And oh, for indeed. one of my <laughs> and for one of my sons, it's like, can't I just listen to some rock music? to calm down. And I'm like, in my brain, I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. No, but Am I harming him by depriving him of listening to some of the music that I don't think is healthy, that I don't think is serving him, and yet I can actually detect a potentially healing aspect, a regulating aspect to some of this stuff from his age one, age two, age three lizard brain that he doesn't even understand why he likes this music. Does that make sense?
2: It does make sense. And just a... uh A statement um i've heard and and repeated it's not mine but the brain likes what the brain knows Hmm. even if the brain is is a is essentially and first of all it is an organ of survival and so it likes what it knows even if what it knows is judged by you dad to not be good right now that doesn't mean the brain has to stay stay like that but those rhythms that your son experienced early in life are probably better replicated by a a more rocky tune Uh, or, or, you know, um, no, I'm not advocating for some of the lyrics that might go along with that, but that's my concern. I'm saying there are plenty, there's plenty of music without lyrics that has, that has a beat that they can relate to. So yeah, you asking him to listen to Mozart is probably as (laughs) dysregulating a thing as, as, no, I'm not saying you did that. I know that. (laughs) I I know you didn't, but But I steer
0: him more towards the softer music and, and, and that's not recognizing what he actually needs. And I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm open. I just, I'm trying to serve him the best I can. I think honestly,
2: that's one reason. And my son is a musician and does a lot of music work with with us in this network and and we will find the hip hop beat to be regulating for lots of kids yeah and i again i'm not advocating for some of the hip hop lyrics although maybe for some people that's a release of their pain and their struggle and i'm i'm okay with that um but for for your children to to get a a beat that fits for them will only then allow them later to learn to enjoy other beats and other styles, but to force what we think is the healing music upon our kids, who intrinsically know that's not, is, yeah, you're, you're going against a biology that exists, right? Yeah, The brain likes what the brain knows. And, and that goes back to the word I, I mentioned earlier on. That's why many repetitions of good are needed to change the brain. It likes what it knows, and we have to respect that. But it's also plastic enough to change and and, and learn from other in, in other ways and, and to receive comfort in other ways. So not that Mozart's out of the picture, but just maybe not in the picture right now. The timing is right, maybe isn't, not in this the, season. The timing isn't good. <laughs>
0: And I have to also look in the mirror and acknowledge that I didn't like Mozart at age eleven either. I had to grow through the seasons as a well-regulated child to to be open to receiving Mozart later in life. And so, I think sometimes we expect uh, our kids to to be on a different time time frame than we would ideally like them to be on. And as you're suggesting, they're they're running their own race, and and we're just guiding them along the way. And toward that end. I'll ask this question. It's one thing to talk about abuse, and I know my kids were abused or neglected or whatever, but but I've heard it said that our kids are going to end up on a therapist's couch one way or the other. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to have a daddy wound somehow, or is is that a lie? I mean, is how can we, as loving, well-intentioned, nurturing fathers trying to absolutely show up the best we can, avoid messing up our kids? So, what are some common pitfalls that you see that may land our kids on a therapist's couch someday?
2: The consistency with which you might care for your kids is going to be utterly dependent on the consistency that you care for yourself and and it, what kids want all kids want is consistency and predictability, yeah, our brains. Oh, we already said, our brains like what the brain knows. They don't want unpredictability. They don't want inconsistency. And I think when we as fathers provide a consistent and and predictable environment for our kids, then we just got to let our kids be kids. And they're going to grow and they're going to become who they become. And they're not going to be just like us, hopefully. And they're going (laughs) to you know, they're, they're going to be going to be their own true soul, which I think is their authentic self. I I, I just think we we just don't want to cover their authentic self with our egos and our garbage Mm. and our, and so the healthier we are as dads, automatically the healthier our kids are. And I, I, I know people get, you know, but you, you mentioned self-care and these days, and you get your head bit off. But you know the idea is, I think, and we don't actually talk so much about self-care as much as we talk about community care. So you get you you become part of a community that cares for you and cares for your children, and you in in turn you reciprocate, and that is the healthiest way I think to ensure that our kids are going to do the best they can, and, and then. Never. My other practical advice is, you know, don't let perfect get in the way of good. Uh, You know, and that's an old statement, but it's a very true one. The harder we try to think we need to be perfect at this, the worse we're going to make. it. So, you know, you're already good. You are two good dads. I can look at you right now. I have no doubt you are two good dads and you don't need
1: to be more than good. Thanks. You're good right now. That's a great encouragement and a great reminder to all the listeners. Don't be afraid. Don't be so afraid of your failure that you, that you fail to show up, you know? So show up, do your best, be present in the lives of your kid. Like I, like I say often, live this default engaged lifestyle with your family, with your kids. And, um, yeah, it easy, it is easy to sit back and worry, you know, oh, how, how bad am I going to screw up my kids? I I certainly, um, have fallen victim to that mindset in the past, you know? Um, but what a great word of encouragement to say, Hey, listen, be consistent, you know, be predictable, show up, do your best. And guess what? When we, when we screw it up, because newsflash, inevitably we will. Just own that and apologize to your kids. I apologize to my kids all the time. Hey, bud, I went, you know, I'm real sorry for my tone of voice earlier. I wasn't actually pissed at you. I was just dealing with this other thing at work. And, you know, sorry if I kind of seemed sharp. I didn't mean it. Right? Will you forgive me? Um, that happens a lot in my household, is me asking the forgiveness of my children because I botched it.
2: Exactly. You know what? One other thing, and I know we gotta be done here pretty soon, but I can't not say this is dads, you are unique. There is not another piece in the cro- in the jigsaw puzzle that looks like you and that can fill that spot. So you are absolutely unique. There is no one who can do what you can do. So that is that word is, it's, it's a beautiful word, but it's also a word that comes with responsibility. You have something to give your children that absolutely can't be given to them from anyone else. There is no replacing you. So the more authentic you, the more authenticity that relationship with your kids is. So that, that comes as a word of encouragement, but it also comes as a word of responsibility. Yeah. There's no one like you. And I, you know, I get to, I get to be grandpa. So I I, I understand there's no one like grandpa. You know, no one can, no one can do for my grandchildren what I'm allowed to do. Um and, I don't do it perfectly by any means, but I do know I, I'm that I'm that unique part in their in their little jigsaw puzzle, right? Yeah. And we all know how ticked off we are when we finish a jigsaw puzzle and then one piece is missing. Um, we don't like that; um, it's unfinished. So, dads, let's not let's not let the puzzle be unfinished. You you are the unique piece, and I and I want dads to to feel that in a positive way and in a responsible way.
0: Well, I think that's a great way to wrap things up. I, I've certainly learned a ton. I've been encouraged. Uh, I I know the listeners have as well. So Steve, I thank you for sharing some of your time and expertise and wisdom with all of us this morning. And it's just that's a cool thing that you're doing. I know you're making a big impact in the school systems. So I feel like we could go a million more directions with this conversation. Uh, I look forward to following your work reading more of Dr. Perry's work. I'll post some links in the show notes below for listeners who may want to dive deeper into some of these topics. But yeah, thank you for listening. And we will we'll talk with you guys again soon on a future episode of the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. Take care, everyone. I had another question. Is it harder for people who experienced abuse themselves to be good fathers? In other words, it, yeah, yeah. Is it do you see that where men who haven't overcome and dealt with their own childhood issues recreate past sin's sort of the general generational curse idea?
2: Yeah. Well, it certainly can happen. And I'm not saying it it, it can't. But I, I think, and I'm thinking of your boys in particular, if they grow up with the, even the self-understanding we talked about, yeah, and they, they get a chance to just understand their own what's under the hood, right? I think that's incredibly important. Because what that often does is eliminates shame. And it eliminates, well, like, why do I feel this way? Listen, bud. They're, you know, I'm not that we're trying to take them back to the past and, and re traumatize in any way, but I think self understanding matters a lot. And, and we, so w- with many of the really tough kids, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, tough circumstance kids that we work with, we teach them about their system. We teach them what's under the hood. And they often, Will relax and go oh that's why yeah <laughs> um and that's that goes for all kids I, I mean i taught this to my eighth graders all the time and and they were incredibly interested and some of them were incredibly relieved hmm. to know that okay that's why why do i have test anxiety why do you know okay I get it. But you, unless you understand yourself, it's really hard to make a change that matters. So I, I, I think your boys have every reason to believe they would be wonderful fathers. Will they have a little bit of accent on their love language? Absolutely. Um, that will happen.
0: But as you suggested, that makes them uniquely them. And they're That's their own them. puzzle piece that will fit in exactly where they need to be as God uses them. So, yeah. yeah.
2: And they they will be probably wonderful fathers. And and I just I, I thank both of you and I do have to jump, but I just thank both of you for being the dads you are. Cause that just makes me feel so good. Thanks. <laughs> I get to work I you know, essentially work with a lot of kids who didn't get that. And um and I a bit know how that feels to have that absence. But um when when you see, you know, I get to spend time with dads like you, that's old oh boy that that is an encouragement and yeah your kids are going to turn out just fine